Hello uh, to our listeners. This is the second episode of the Infographici podcast, and today I am in Norway, in Bergen, and I'm joined by Scott Rutberg. Hello. Scott and I just met at a uh, film festival where Scott was sharing some of his work. He has a website called crchange.net. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Hearts and Minds, the Interrogations Project, is a virtual reality narrative. It was originally produced in the Cave 2 at the Electronic Visualization Lab at the University of Illinois, Chicago, uh, by a group of artists and researchers, including Roderick Coover, Arthur Nishimoto, Daria Supakova, and myself. It's a project about prisoner torture in Iraq. Uh, specifically U.S. soldiers who dur early during the campaign uh, in Iraq in the early 2000s had either participated in or witnessed acts of torture, uh, mainly in the battlefield. This isn't in CIA black sites uh, or Abu Ghraib. This is uh, ordinary soldiers uh, who were learning about these acts and, uh, and then emulated them. It was produced originally at the Electronic Visualization Lab in Chicago uh, in something called a Cave 2. And most people, when they think of VR now, are, uh, are thinking of things like the Oculus Rift or the HTC Vive or Samsung Gear, Cardboard, etc. This is actually a slightly different setup uh, in that it's a full room uh, immersive experience with uh, 72 HD displays. Uh, with a, a full 3D setup that everyone in the room experiences with one person, one performer uh, being tracked. So we see everything from his perspective. Rod and I were talking about what we could do in this space. And he mentioned a story that he had just heard from a friend of his who's a researcher on collective violence at St. Andrews University uh, in the UK. Uh, he had just had a, a PhD student complete his research on this topic of torture in Iraq, a guy named John Sukiyama. John uh, has an, uh, an interesting backstory himself in that he was a private investigator. Uh, he, you know, was, a, was a, a mature student, somebody who's in his, I think, 50s now. When he, he heard about Abu Ghraib uh, and what was happening there, as himself being an interrogator, uh, he was very shocked and intrigued by what had happened, and he wanted to know where things went wrong. So he sent out a call on various military veterans' mailing lists, uh, asking for anyone who had, either, who, who had either seen or themselves engaged in acts of torture uh, in Iraq to, to contact him. He then uh, flew these soldiers out to where he lives in Hawaii uh, and spent a couple of days with each of them, uh, interviewing them, uh, in a sort of uh, relaxed atmosphere where they were comfortable sharing their stories, and he guaranteed them uh, complete anonymity and to protect their identities, uh, and, you know, interviewed in them, I think, in a very kind of empathic way. So then uh, we discussed with these two researchers the possibility of developing a new media artwork to communicate these stories to different audiences, to get people to begin to think about the realities of, of battlefield torture and to think about the processes that underlie uh, what happened there and, and to think about how we could avoid uh, creating this type of environment in the future. So when I heard, I, I listened to some of the project at the Bergen Film Festival, there was a new media kind of zone. 
and I w- I didn't know anything about the project. But as soon as I heard some of the testimony, we're going to play some of the clips just in a moment, um, I was immediately struck at the disconnect between what I hear these men did in that country and the kind of general um, perception and image of nations like the United States and Britain and so on. And I think that disconnect is something we've spoken about on this podcast before and it's something we'll continue to talk about. But it, for me, it was really kind of striking. So let's play a clip here um, of some of the testimonies. So these, these testimonies are, are voice acted from written uh, Right, so uh, to say a little bit about how we developed the script, I took uh, John's dissertation and some interview transcripts that he sent me and I selected different fragments from these that were sort of representative of the different types of experience that people had wrote them into four voices. Uh, I didn't change the content uh, of the stories at all, but I did aggregate them and and put them into the the voices of individual characters. Uh, Rod then took those back to the film school at Philadelphia and worked with voice actors uh, who interpreted uh, and performed these characters. So let's give a listen to a character from the project uh, Hearts and Minds called Chris. I've always considered war to be the ultimate human experience. You know, good, bad, or otherwise. I had a saying, there's only like three things in life that are all they're cracked up to be. It's women, drugs, and war. They're the only three things that you ever experience that are really everything that they say they are. Seriously, they're all they're cracked up to be. And that, that's kind of the main reason I joined the military. Not just because of family ties, but it just there's no other way to learn things about yourself that you can learn in the military. I wanted to find out what I was really capable of in the most extreme set of circumstances. Everybody in my family served in the military. It was like you couldn't be a man until you'd done your service. My dad served in the tail end of Vietnam. He volunteered. He didn't get drafted. He joined the infantry, yeah, so he lied about his age in order to get in. I remember when I was a kid, I'd dress up in his old camis. And one time I found uh, his, his old footlocker, which had a lot of photos and little notebooks that he would, he would detail events that happened to him while he was over there. And I was always in awe. He did some crazy shit. My grandfather on my mother's side, he'd been in Korea. He told me I couldn't do it, that I wouldn't survive, that I wouldn't last. I wasn't tough enough. Fuck him. I hated that old man. When we'd come into a place a home or whatever, a lot of the time we knew, like, we knew that these people knew things. And we knew they knew who the bad guys were. And we had to scare them, you know? Noise, smoke, fear. We were going to scare the hell out of them. We would bag them and bind them and put them in the stress position with their faces up against the wall. I would, like, take this metal chair and slam it against the wall right next to their head. It was something I just, um, like, developed as a tactic to generate fear. Extreme fear. It was extremely loud, and it was right next to their ear. It was like a really jarring thing, not knowing if the next time they're actually going to get hit. One of the things that we would do is ask them, like, one of the things would be, like, in Arabic to say, like, what's your name? It was like shishmuk or some shit. I'm pronouncing it wrong. We would just scream this question over and over again. So the guy'd be against the wall. My partner would just scream shishmuk at this guy. And as soon as he'd scream that question, I'd slam the chair against the wall and freak the guy out. And then he'd scream the question again, and we'd just be asking this question that wasn't a question to this person. But he knew we were asking him something, he just didn't know what. And then every time I'd just be smashing this chair. 
And so it was just like, I mean, in a way, there was no information to get from this. It was just putting them in a psychological state that was extremely disoriented and terrified. All people speak fear. If you scare them and convince them that they'll die, they will do what you want them to do. These tactics work. And a lot of times you don't have to go all the way. You just have to, you know, produce the illusion that they're under, you know, a life-threatening circumstance. And it works. There was this guy, like this village elder or whatever, gray hair and old and wise and all that. So we know. We know if anybody knows where they've got the bombs and shit, it's this guy. So we did shit. We took turns. We beat him. Somebody shocked him with a cord from a lamp, like in Rambo or whatever. We tried out shit from the movies. Um, I myself lopped off a couple fingers, starting from each joint, working my way down with a pair of wire cutters. It was something I read in one of my dad's books, something they did to prisoners back in Nam. And the guy was completely powerless, screaming, No, no, please don't. And everybody else was like, Do it. Do it to him. And I was like, just answer the damn question or this little piggy's never coming home. His fate rested in our hands. It was ours for the choosing. And you know what? It was a unique and wonderful feeling. I had this great feeling, this feeling of empowerment about me. I felt... I felt mighty, you know? Still, in the end, it felt a little, like, pointless. Whatever. I mean, we learned where some of the shit was. But after a while, it felt like we weren't getting any new intel. And so then I shot him. Had to. He wasn't going to get to talk about what happened. About what we did to him. It's kind of shocking, right? Well, it is shocking. I mean, a lot of these guys were admitting to war crimes, uh, essentially. Uh, obviously, that's not something that would uh, ever be uh, officially endorsed. Um, but you can see how, I guess, sort of in the, in the fog of, of war, uh, how these, these acts could occur uh, and how they would not be uh, reported given a kind of uh, code of silence. Um, and you can see also, uh, as we track through these characters, how their attitudes gradually shift. Uh, and, and as I, I read through the interviews, it was clear that they went from many, many of these soldiers, and this is maybe one of the more extreme voices in the piece, uh, but many of these soldiers didn't come to the military in order to become torturers. Uh, that wasn't their intent. It was a, a sort of slow, uh, gradual process of, in, in a sense, alienation from themselves. And I, I mentioned that the, the metaphor that we used in structuring this piece was the metaphor of home, because the soldiers often talked about uh, when they were in the battlefield, how they began to feel gradually more and more distanced uh, from the person that they were at home. And then uh, in the final room, when they have returned, when their deployment is over and they return back home, uh, how they feel deeply uh, alienated from themselves. And in other words, that home itself now feels like an artificial environment to them. There's a lot more that I wouldn't say in public for fear of the way people are going to look at me than, say, on a one-on-one -on -one basis where it's just me and one other person. And no matter what they look at, how they look at me, they actually have to live with what I tell them. It's them that has to go to sleep with the images that I had in my head. 
and I started to look at it as fair as fair. You've asked me to do this. Why can't, why can't these people look at these images and see these images that are in my head? So they can see that life's not all rainbows and lollipops. And there's a reason that soldiers are killing themselves with a higher rate now than ever before. It's not because we're doing great things for God and country. You know, I was having problems when I got back, and I talked to my dad. I mean, I knew what he'd done in Vietnam. And when I, when I was talking to him about my problems, it kind of... He'd been bottling it up and holding it in for so long without anybody to talk to that when it started coming out, it kind of really fucked him up too. He, like, almost killed himself. I don't know how to put it. When I started talking about what I did, he remembered what he did, and it kind of made things worse for him, and I sort of feel that's my fault. So how, I find this testimony really fascinating, actually, because it says, um, it says quite a lot, in my view, about this idea that, I mean, we hear it quite often, of the, these young men coming back uh, from these war zones, they're completely forgotten about and not really taken care of. And yet they have these stories that they, um, not only do most people not know, and I think it's important that people do know about this, but they seem incapable of telling these stories. It's kind of an interesting project in that somehow through this process that you and the researchers that you mentioned, these stories have emerged at all because they're fairly difficult stories for these young men to tell. Yeah, well, and they, they come back home and uh, they were able to tell the stories to, to John in this sort of uh, away space, this kind of, uh, you know, Hawaii away from their regular lives. But uh, one, of the, one of the soldiers talked about uh, coming home and, and being, um, having this, this urge towards violence that he himself couldn't control. But, you know, he has a wife and he has, and he has children and he has stories that he feels that he can't even tell the people that he's most intimate with because he's become something other than than himself than the self that they know there was a lot of a lot of aggression in our platoon we'd go out on patrol and you know sometimes if something had happened it would be like fuck it if there's a sniper we wouldn't know where it was coming from we would just do all directional shooting firing at anything that moves like in a video game, everything is a target. You stop thinking of them as people. We raided this pharmacy early on, and uh, and I had assumed that we were going to go, you know, come out with some opiates or something, and would you know spend the rest of the year comatose with the stuff. But instead, they they come out with vials and vials of steroids, and so the whole platoon got on steroids. And then, when you get a hold of a guy, a prisoner, sometimes you would start doing something and just kind of lose track. One time we caught this guy right as he was planning an IED on the road right in fucking front of us. We got him in the Humvee, and we just took turns carving stuff. Stars, smiley faces, whatever. Our initials in his face. Just to leave him with some scars that, you know, would never go away. And at one point, I, like, peeled back the skin of his face, like, just to see what was under there. His jaw muscles and teeth and tongue and shit. Just a lot of blood. 
I just spaced or something and went into this zone and kept peeling. And he was like moaning and making this awful noise. And after that, we were like, fuck it, we're not taking them back. Nobody's going to process them. Who wants to explain that? So we drew straws, and one of us shot them in the side of the head with a drop weapon, and we dumped them on the road, ran them over, and that was that. We just headed back to the base. I think the one thing I hated worse than anything or anybody was myself for what I was turning into over there, and how much I enjoyed it. To this day, I still have a problem not hurting people because I want to. I want to hurt people. I go out to the bar and I just want to get into a fight with one of those normal fucking people. I want them to feel the pain that I feel inside. But I want theirs to be physical. I don't know. It's hard to explain. Like, I just want to hurt people and it makes me feel evil. Psychotic. And my wife doesn't understand that when I get angry, I just want to hurt people. I go out and I pick fights. I go out and I beat people into fights with me just so I can hurt them. And she just doesn't understand why. I don't know how to explain it to her. I like to break people's bones in a fight. I mean, I was trained in the army and, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I don't go toe-to-toe with people. I take them to the ground and I break something. I want to hear it snap. I want to hear them scream. It makes me feel better. It's like me releasing the scream myself. I'm a fucking monster, okay? I know that now. I got kids, you know? And I don't want them to know who I am and what I've done. This is Edward's story, and I think um, when I heard that, it, I immediately thought of this story I read a couple of years ago, that um, the military planners in Vietnam had sussed out a problem. They might well have even been before Vietnam. These young conscripts would turn up and they didn't want to kill anybody. They didn't want to shoot. They would often actually shoot to miss their targets. Mm-hmm. And so the training of uh, these young guys had to change. We, they had to find a way to turn these normal, ordinary young men into killers. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like when we, we can hear Edward here um, talking about that exact effect. You know, he, he sounds like he's been turned into a murderer, a killer. And he's really struggling with that. What do you think about that? What do you make of that? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think there's also some uh, controversy around other aspects of our culture. Uh, for example, uh, uh, first-person shooters, to take uh, one example, where some people have written about the idea of bodily training. In other words, that uh, w- what we're actually doing uh, when we play first-person shooters are learning that when we see a hostile object coming towards us, we don't think we pull the trigger and, and kill. Um, and we do, you know, if we think about what, you know, what do you want in a military force, you do want people who are capable of, of killing. Uh, but you want them to do so within a, a structure that includes uh, civilization, that includes, you know, r- rules of engagement. Um, and certainly uh, they wrote the Geneva Convention for a reason. Uh, you don't want people out in the battlefield, or really, in my opinion, anywhere else, uh, torturing uh, prisoners. Now, we've done a number of different, we've shown this in a number of different contexts. We showed this in, at the Oslo Human Rights Film Festival, and we had a panel discussion afterwards uh, with a number of interesting people, one of whom was uh, 
a Norwegian superintendent of police uh, who himself had interrogated the 22nd of July bomber uh, Anders Bering Breivik, uh, the worst terrorist incident uh, in the history of Norway. Um, and he had a perspective, uh, and he's actually, to a certain extent, been an activist for humane interrogation methods. When Brevik was first captured, he was saying that there were others out there, that, that he created this kind of ticking bomb scenario. He was saying other things were going to happen. So this was the exact sort of situation in which a lot of people of a particular mindset would say, well, you should have, uh, you, you should torture this person to get him to talk. He said, and, uh, and the research supports him on this, that when people are tortured, they do talk, but they don't tell the truth. Mm. So people who are being tortured will create any fiction. They'll, they'll create whatever they think the interrogator uh, wants them to say, but th this, this stress, this pain that's being inflicted on them doesn't actually get you closer to the truth. What actually gets you, uh, what actually gets suspects to talk is empathy. So he said that when he interrogates prisoners, even when he interrogates Brevik, He's encouraging them to tell their stories and to, to trying to understand uh, why they made the choices that they did. Mm -hmm. Because people often, uh, even people who we might think of as evil, mm -hmm. um, when, they do, when they do these things, they're, they're carrying a burden and they, they have a story. So, so it's, a, it's a matter of empathy. Uh, and empathy becomes a much more effective interrogation method than any kind of pain uh, that we could inflict on a suspect. And, and yet here um, in the testimonies that you've provided, we heard, heard uh, Chris earlier and, and the character just earlier was Edward. Um, you hear someone who sounds fully capable of taking enjoyment mm -hmm. in the physical torture of who he described to be an old man, a man of kind of no physical threat to anybody. How high up the chain do you think it goes um, for, for, in terms of culpability for who is creating these individuals? Is it the yeah. responsibility of the individual or do you think that there is a system in place kind of considered at a policy level that produces young men that do these things? Well, um, I think if we go back particularly to, uh, to September 11th, 2001, um, and the years immediately afterwards, uh, you had this real sort of sea change uh, in what was coming from the top. Now, nobody in the U.S. Uh, military said, oh, we want to have our, our soldiers out there torturing people explicitly. But you did have the, the Secretary of Defense saying, we're going to take the gloves off. We're going to do things that we've never done before. And you did have the White, White House uh, lawyers trying to find any, any loophole that they could to uh, use these expanded uh, interrogation methods. So we think about, well, how does that filter down? And there, there's one story uh, in here where there's a, one of the soldiers is reporting to uh, her higher, uh, her, her CO, um, something that one of the Iraqi soldiers is doing with a, an electrical cord to, to one of the prisoners. And, you know, the CO says something like, I didn't hear that. Uh, get the fuck out of here. 
A lot of the enhanced techniques don't involve direct physical contact with the detainee. They can just be loud music playing for hours, sleep deprivation, or sitting in a particularly uncomfortable way. They seem much more benign, so you can sort of convince yourself that you're not doing something horrible, but it slowly becomes clear to me that what we're doing is really actually pretty awful. At that point, the prisoners were helpless, and they were in our care, and just seeing the way they deteriorated and just watching people suffer, that it's just, it, it got to be too much. I, I couldn't do it. You know, you're over there and it's, it's okay. You're told these things are legal and you're being told by your leaders to do these things and everybody thinks it's okay. So you're kind of in this moral bubble. Like you don't, you don't see what's happening. But when the Abu Ghraib scandal broke and you could see that the outrage that people were having back home in the States about this and all around you, you just kind of realize, shit, that's exactly what we're doing. I'm part of it too. We raided a house one day and secured it. There was nothing in it. There was like this kid and one of their soldiers, which is an E4. He's like, come here, you little fuck, to the kid. And I was like, what the hell is wrong with you? It's like a six-year-old kid. And I got into a huge argument with him. And he was like, whatever, Sergeant so-and-so. And I was like, come here. I, I, like, I really took the situation with children very seriously. You know, like. It was like, you're a fucking grown man in body armor punking a six-year-old kid. That is pathetic. What is wrong with you? It's a child you're terrorizing. I wanted to get it through his head that, and it wasn't the first time I've talked to him about it before. I pulled him on the side and I'm like, dude, you can't do that. And so like at that time, you know, we're hot and angry and I was just frustrated and he's like yelling at the kid and I wanted him to feel shame. I wanted to shame him into not doing that ever again. I wanted him to understand that what he was doing was wrong. Of course, not, uh, not all the soldiers were doing this. Mm. Uh, some of them were, were witnessing these acts and were resistant to them. But if you come back to uh, the question that you asked about the system, mm -hmm. the system was, uh, was very much working to suppress those voices. And now today, for example, let's, let's, let's talk about, I mean, last night, a lot of people here at the festival watched Hillary Clinton debate Donald Trump. And Donald Trump has famously kind of gained ground by being explicit in his support of torture. Would you allow U.S. interrogators to waterboard terrorist prisoners? in order to extract information. Absolutely. You know, this question was in the previous debate, okay? And they asked it of Ted Cruz. What do you think of waterboarding and what would you do and how bad? And he was like really weak on it. He was, well, I, he didn't want to get involved because he thought waterboarding was bad. So it's, of course it's bad, but it's not like, it's not chopping off heads, folks, okay? That I can tell you. So they asked him and he really gave a very incomplete answer. It was a terrible answer. He was stumbling and mumbling, and he's going like, well, I don't know. Okay. Then they asked the question to me. Well, what would you do? I said, I'd prove it immediately, but I'd make it also much worse. They said, what do you mean? I said, I'd do much worse. I said, they're chopping off our heads in the Middle East. They want to kill us. They want to kill us. They want to kill our country. They want to knock out our cities. And don't tell me it doesn't work. Torture works, okay, folks? Torture, you know, I have these guys... Torture doesn't work. Believe me, it works, okay? 
and waterboarding is your minor form. Some people say it's not actually torture. Let's assume it is. But they asked me the question, what do you think of waterboarding? Absolutely fine. But we should go much stronger than waterboarding. That's the way I feel. I don't think for him it's necessity, it's uh, desire. Yeah, it's strange, right? But what worries me, I, I suppose I shouldn't say worried, but it, it seems alarming that there is a trend of support for this. I mean, mm -hmm. for a long time there was a lot of discussion online, like, this is obviously clearly wrong. And now we have a presidential can candidate who is, is by no means on the fringes of society, who explicitly supports torture and seems to have a huge amount of support. Yeah, I think that uh, at a certain point, people stop thinking about it's. It's sort of like what what happens to the prison systems, right? People stop thinking about rehabilitation; they start thinking about revenge. So when he's saying, "Well, what we really need to do is torture these people," I don't think what he's really saying is uh, we're going to win the war on terrorism by torturing people. People will say that; they'll give lip service to it. I think that what they're they're really saying is. We're so shocked and offended by these acts that we want to do something shocking and offensive uh, in return. And I, and I think that's where you really get into a kind of civilization breakdown. Uh, at what point do you uh, stop, becoming, st stop being something other than a terrorist and in response to terrorism yourself become a terrorist? Mm. I think this is a question that we need to, to think about uh, and ask. And, and one of the points of our project that I think is is really important is that we say, well, we need to get our soldiers out there torturing people. We tend to stop thinking about what torture does to the torturer. In other words, these stories, none of these soldiers come back from these experiences without being fundamentally and deeply changed. Uh, in other words, when we ask people to torture, we're asking them to destroy themselves as well as to destroy other people. If you want to, uh, as we said earlier, um, if you want to check out the full project, go to crchange.net. You'll see updates there. Anything that uh, Scott and, and Roderick would like to share, maybe we'll put up on the page. We'll play uh, one more story. Thank you, Scott. Thank you to Roderick. He wasn't here. Yeah. And uh, thank you guys for listening. All right, great. Thanks for, for listening. It was my first interaction with a detainee. It was the first time um, we were in a town. We had dismounted from our Humvees, and we started up our patrol, and we took some small arms fire, and we busted down the door, and we took the guy by surprise. They dragged him out, and they beat him a little, yelled at him, you know, kicked him, and then, and then flexicuffed him and threw him in the back of the high-back Humvee, and we continued on our way, and we took him with us, and then after continuing our patrol route, we returned back to base. He was left face down in the back of the high back and people with their feet on him, which is considered disgraceful in Iraq to show the bottom of your foot or put the bottom of your foot on somebody. He was left back there for maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half before he was finally pulled out and taken to the holding facility. And there he was beaten again and then thrown in a cell. And then they, um, we, butt-stroked him a couple of times and beat him with sticks. I was kind of shocked, you know, but I was, I was just learning how it was done. Keep in mind, these guys were trying to kill us with IEDs. I may sound like I'm defending a lot of these really awful practices, but at the time, I was the biggest thorn in the side of, of, of everyone who was doing this sort of thing.
I was very much against what they were doing to these people. One time I stayed in the room with, as they, um, the, the Iraqi police started to interrogate this prisoner. And it wasn't like they had a reason. They weren't trying anything. The guy was a, he was a, a different ethnic persuasion than they were. He was in the wrong part of town and they captured him and they were going to beat the hell out of him. And my friend, um, he was a police officer. I think he may have been trying to impress me, maybe by mistreating the prisoner. He starts questioning this guy, putting a gun to his head, and then, like, you know, starts hitting him with a cleaning rod. And I was like, hey, 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 th this is kind of going over the line. And, uh, and then, like, he, he, he wanted me to help search this guy. So I started searching this guy and, you know, took off his shoes. And, and then my friend takes a power cord from a lamp. And he, he kind of mimes to me that, like, if he hooks the power cord up to his feet, he'll feel it in his genitals. And, and you know, at this point, I say, stop, stop. I went to get the platoon leader, who could not have cared less about what the fuck I had to say. He was like... You know, get the fuck away from me. Whatever. I, I was like, no, no, you're real. They're really going to do this. You need to, you need to step in there. And he's like, whatever. Just, just go away. <laughs>